When my daughter Caroline was three, she started ballet lessons. She loved it. She was also pretty good at it. And eventually, she got a role for the Nutcracker. And honey, she practiced every day. She would sometimes make everybody in the family play a different role so that she could do her part over and over. As we got closer to the big performance, she began to realize this wasn't gonna be at her studio. She was going somewhere else on a stage in front of a bunch of people. She was a little shy. So one thing that happened is she was like, I just don't know. That's, that's a lot of people and I don't wanna be on that stage kind of thing. Well, her brother, Huck, said, hey, maybe I can be one of the soldiers and I can be on stage with you and then you won't be afraid. So Huck tried out to be one of the soldiers and he was picked to be the soldier that rolled the cannon out and fired it. So Caroline was thrilled that she was gonna have her safety net with her. And Huck, of course, was thrilled because he and his words got to blow something up. Huck would sometimes get a little bit of ribbon from friends because he stayed in the Nutcracker with her for several years. And as he got a little bit older, he would tell the boys that were giving him a little bit of the business, he'd say, look, it's me and 30 girls and they're all backstage changing costumes. And then he would say, and you know what? I'm gonna be the Mouse King, and that's the role that Tupac had. Tonight, Kathy Scott is with us. She not only was a New York Times bestselling author, she was an LA Times bestselling author. Now, Kathy and I first met and became fast friends because we both wrote for Women in Crime, Inc., then we met in person at CrimeCon. She has a legendary photo. It's her and F. Lee Bailey and some other people. And the reason I love this photograph so much is I took it. And every time I see it, I get so frustrated because I'm like, dang it, I wish I was in that picture. But taking it was pretty cool, I got to say. And when we took on Tupac's case in 2015, literally her book, became our Bible. It is to date the most in-depth investigative book on Tupac's murder that I've ever read. I was headed to Vegas in 2015 because I needed to be at the crime scene to walk it, to understand it, to really see it. But Kathy had already moved to San Diego, but she is one of those people that continued to help me with cases like Drew Peterson, Meyer Lansky, Frank Collada, and of course, Tupac Shakur. The students revere her, the experts admire her, and I have the great fortune of her being my friend and somebody in my Zone 7. And I will tell you, as a friend, she wrote a fabulous biography on me, which I am forever indebted. So ladies and gentlemen, Kathy Scott. Thank you so much for a warm introduction, Cheryl, and um, I am happy to call you friend as well and happy to be here on your podcast. Well, I'll tell you, baby, this case, <laughs> <laughs> this case to me has so many just roads that spiral out from it. I mean, you've got the music industry and not just the music industry, but gangster rap at a time where a lot of people weren't really fans and law enforcement was still trying to understand it because a lot of the music was directed negatively toward them. You got gangs, you got the Bloods and the Crips, you've got 
drugs and drug sales. You've got lawsuits. You've got homicides, high-profile homicides. How in the world did you first get into this case with your phone ringing at about 2 in the morning? I was a reporter at the time at the Las Vegas Sun. I covered police. I had, you know, but the police beat was was mine. And uh, we had a we had a night um, police reporter as well. But um, I got a call from a source inside the homicide unit about two o'clock, as you said, in the morning, who said, get up, rapper. Tupac Shakur, because they couldn't pronounce Tupac Shakur, they at that point didn't even know who he was. And so I headed, uh, I threw on some clothes and grabbed my reporter's notebook and headed down to the Las Vegas Strip. And I've been covering the case ever since. Now, at that time, again, law enforcement could not even pronounce his name correctly, but they knew enough, your source knew enough to call you out of bed. So they knew it was going to be pretty important, right? Yeah, well, they, I mean, they knew that, that it was a rapper and he was a big deal. And so they knew, they knew that much. Plus, it was such a, uh, I mean, it was a drive-by shooting and ended up with the cars on the Las Vegas Strip. And, and he was giving me a heads up to go cover a crime. And so I did, you know, forever grateful for that. And the, who will remain, um, nameless uh, source who, who called me on that night and early morning. And then the, um, it was just kind of crazy after that. There was a news conference and I went to that and the, <clears throat> there was a Bruce Southern Mike Tyson fight and which is why Tupac was in town and why the Crips gang members were in town. So that's why Tupac was driving in the car after the fight, headed down to a club to perform. But the, you know, the fight, it was all hyped up. It was, you know, uh, Mike Tyson knocked out Bruce Selden in 109 seconds. And, and Tupac was just, if you, you see the video of him. He was in, interviewed just after walking out of the Grand Arena, all hyped up. I mean, he, you know, BET interviewed him. And so that's the mood he was in when they went down to get out of the MGM and saw Orlando Anderson from Compton standing at the elevator. And that's when the whole, whole beatdown happened. Well, let's go back a second. When were you first aware of the shooting from 1994. 94 was when Tupac got shot at uh, Quad Studios, right? Mm-hmm, correct. Yeah, that was the impetus for the East Coast, West Coast rap war. So Tupac was really good friends with Biggie, and Tupac was bigger than Biggie at that point. Tupac used to invite Biggie on stage, so... Um, so they became friends. They, he'd go to, he, you know, I interviewed uh, Biggie's mother, uh, Valletta Wallace. I interviewed um, the guy who hired Biggie Smalls at his grocery store when he was 12 years old. And his son was best friends with him even as an adult. And Tupac would take his limo, have his limo driver go into Bedside, you know, New Jersey and pick up Biggie and his friend and go down to Manhattan and, and party. And so they were, they were good friends. You know, Tupac was apparently a little gullible when Tupac got there and everybody was waiting for him. Biggie was there, you know, he was recording his, uh, 
record producer, uh, Sean Combs, was there, P. Diddy, and backup singers. Tupac was there on a different thing, but they all knew that he, that the others were going to be there. So everybody's waiting. They're looking out the windows, looking down at the street for for Tupac to get there. And this was in Times Square, but it was midnight, you know, so it's not too crowded. So Tupac um, and his and his, the guys he's with, one's his cousin, they are loaded with gold. Gold necklaces, you know, gold bracelets, just gold all around them. And they're walking, you know, down this dark street, Quad, quad Studios at, at, at midnight and they, and I've been to Quad Studios twice and, uh, they walked into the lobby, no video camera on there was, was a camera, no videotape in it. And some guys dressed in cami, unarmed, walk in and just rip off all the jewelry from Tupac. Tupac had a gun in his waist belt. And he reached for it and he fired it before pulling it out and shot himself in the groin. So he had to go to the hospital, but he went upstairs first. It wasn't a bad injury. You know, he was in a wheelchair the next day, had to appear in court, and he went to um, prison the next day. Tupac, once he was in, in prison, Someone told him, hey, Biggie set you up. Biggie set you up. He's the one who got those guys at Quad Studios to steal your jewelry. And he believed it. And from then on, that, that, is, that is what started the East Coast, West Coast record. September 7th, 1996, Tupac Shakur is shot and killed in a drive-by shooting. He's in the black BMW driven by Suge Knight from Death Row Records. Well, it was pretty clear that traditional investigative techniques weren't going to work here because you had every single witness and every single victim taking the street code. Like even when law enforcement asked Tupac, who was conscious, who shot you? He looked right at the man and said, F you. If you believe him, took took that that ex officer seventeen years to say that and to come out and say it. And also, my question is: I knew that Shug Knight and a police officer had pulled Tupac from the car. The car was not on fire. It's not like you have to pull pull somebody out of a car. It wasn't on fire. Nobody was shooting at them because he had already gotten away from the shooters. So they were, they kind of opened the door all the way, but they opened it partially and pulled him out. My question to that former officer was, do you think you injured his chest more because he died of a chest injury? Do you think you did further damage to him when you yanked his body out of that car? I just think that's uh, the least proud thing I would talk about, but I'm just saying. Now, there's a convoy of like 10 cars. They had been to the Tyson fight at the MGM. Then there was a fight at the hotel that included Orlando Anderson, who went by Baby Lane. Now, there's a video. It's a famous video of Tupac and Suge Knight punching and kicking Orlando Anderson. True. And that's, uh, yeah, it's an infamous uh, video. It was interesting when that video came out because the police did not release that video. It was leaked from someone at the hotel to a media outlet. 
Now, that's another thing that I want to talk to you about. I've been to Las Vegas more than once, and people always talk about how many cameras are everywhere because there's just so much cash money and poker chips and everything else around. When I went to that intersection, and again, it was years after, but I standing there could see multiple cameras. How is this murder not captured on film? Well, Las Vegas um, has kind of, back then especially, has kind of been behind the times. But in 1996, there were no video cameras at that intersection. You know, we have the video from the MGM Grand, of course, inside the casino for that beatdown. But um, that's because they're trying to prevent any crimes from going on. And, and, you know, and it's because it's a casino. There's lots of money around. But no, there weren't any uh, cameras. Those came later. It would have saved a whole lot of time and a lot of heartache and a lot of lawsuits and a lot of other killings. Especially today, you know, I, I didn't even have a flip phone at that point. I had a, I had a radio, um, you know, which is what I used, you know, for the, uh, to file my story from the hospital. And we were the first to release that Tupac Shakur had died from, you know, in, in the Las Vegas Sun article that I filed from the scene. That was on a radio to the news desk that had a radio and I, I wrote it in my reporter's notebook and then, and then I uh, called it into the desk. They typed it up, made it live. And, and about two hours later, the breaking news of Tupac's death went worldwide and shut down our website. Well, you were also the first reporter on the scene you saw the black BMW sitting there with tape still around it. Right. And some CSI people were still there. And um, it was just it, it was very, very eerie. And, and then a photographer and I the next day went to the, um, uh, I think we went in, in like noon or something in the afternoon. By then the car was gone. We went to the lot, you know, the the police yard where the car was being held and, and he kind of climbed half the fence so that the photographer could get a photo of the BMW there in the yard. Metro police weren't talking to outside reporters. The sergeant is always the main person to speak with, not the not the two detectives. It's a three-man homicide team. The head sergeant, you know, heading the investigation wasn't picking up his phone or returning calls. And so I had reporters right and left calling me because I was writing about it in the Las Vegas Sun. So it, um, they're very frustrated, um, that, that they weren't getting anything from the police department. It was quite different. And they also at their news conference was a, a probably two days after maybe three days. I think it was a Monday after. And all the sports writers, of course, were all, and TV people were all assigned to the story. So they were, everybody converged. I remember it was on, on grass behind homicide. It's, it's, it's since relocated to, to someplace else, to another building. The sergeant, he, he read the news release and then turned around and walked away and he looked like a deer caught in headlights. Didn't take any questions from any reporters. How could Tupac get shot four times, twice in the chest, 
And Suge Knight kind of just to have a little shrapnel. To me, when you think about the passenger in your car trying to get away, trying to move, trying to get in the back seat, he basically shielded Suge. He did. I've said that all along. You're right, Cheryl. He 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 uh, shielded him. Tupac was all over trying to get out of the, get in the back. It was too small. You know, it was kind of a sporty BMW, and plus he was shot. So, you know, his time to be able to move around, of course, was limited. As, as you know, he he lost blood, but um, but if you look at he's sitting sideways, and the the way they shot, they shot into the car door um, right straight into his side and then you know you can see some of them they, they blew out the windows but um, I he did get Suge Knight still in his neck there's a piece of shrapnel from a bullet in in his uh, the base of his skull top of his neck and he was taken to the hospital with Tupac and Suge was held overnight in the hospital which would have been a good opportunity for Metro Police to go interview him. And they did go to the hospital, but they went later in the day and Suge had already been released. You know, just a, that's one more, one more missed opportunity in my book. Oh, that's a big missed opportunity, no doubt. Keefe D and Orlando Anderson are both Southside Compton Crips, but they are also related. Yes, Keefe D is Orlando Anderson's uncle. And at the time of the shooting, Orlando was living with his uncle, Keefe D, who was a higher up in the in the street gang Crips at that time. And there was a you know, a couple of weeks, I, I, I forget the timeline, but a few weeks later there was a gang roundup. And uh, Compton PD, the gang cops, who I've talked to them at length and met with them several times, and they contacted Metro Police Department that they would be doing a gang roundup and that Keefe D's house, where Orlando lives, the shooter, they would be raiding his house and they would hold him for them to uh, they would detain him, not re arrest him, detain him so that Metro Police could interview him. So a detective with Metro Police went to Compton. I don't know, talk about weather with Orlando, but they he did not interview him about the case. So a lot of people are accepting pretty quickly that Orlando Anderson had something to do with it. Being that KVD had access to a weapon, they were you know, probably not going to allow him to have a beatdown like that and not retaliate in some way. I agree with you that talking to some of these people quickly might have stopped some of this, but Orlando Anderson is killed two years later in an unrelated crime, I guess. He's, he's going to collect some money from a drug deal, and he gets into a shootout, and he's killed. So now you have the primary suspect dead. You can't prosecute him. Suge Knight's not talking. Obviously, Tupac has been murdered. And then we go down the road a little bit. You look at this history where Tupac blamed Biggie for the 1994 shooting. You've got all this East Coast, West Coast happening. And then Biggie Smalls is murdered. It was a domino effect for sure. Biggie was killed six months after Tupac 
that's not as easy to, uh, you know, break down. But with time, you know, there's there's an affidavit. You may have read it. Valletta Wallace sued the LAPD for not solving her son's murder. In it, they say that Biggie Smalls from jail, from prison, this guy, David Mack, who's an ex-cop, a former gang member, he goes to prison to talk to Suge Knight, and Suge Knight has Mack tell their buddy, Harry Billups, who's known as Muhammad, to kill Biggie Smalls. When, you know, Biggie Smalls was murdered outside the Peterson, um, Peterson Automotive Museum, I went there afterward, talked to the security people, and they, security people, they had lots of cameras, but nothing reached the street because I talked to them directly. But anyway, so Biggie Smalls is coming out with P. Diddy and 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 all their backup singers and whatnot, and they're headed out, out the parking lot, which is covered to the sidewalk outside, and along comes this vintage car. Someone opens fire on the car that Biggie is sitting in and, you know, rat-a-tat-tat like Bonnie and Clyde, and he's all shot up. And then that, uh, I think, it was, was it an Impala? And a vintage, and it takes off. Guess what Harry Billups had in his garage? An Impala. But LAPD decided not to prosecute that case. And, you know, speaking of filing lawsuits, Tupac's mom, she filed a lawsuit against Orlando Anderson in 97. And then Orlando Anderson filed one against Death Row Records. I mean, it's just like this whole thing. So much was made public. So much was put on paper. So much was, you know, cataloged for folks. I mean, this to me would be something that you would study if you were investigating this case. And I did. I combed through everything. It was interesting because I was on a BET program with Afeni Shakur, Tupac's mom. And, you know, I had put the autopsy, you know, we had decided to put a, a copy of the autopsy photo in in the um, book. And that's also, by the way, part evidence right now. And then the cover of our book, um, the last photo of him taken uh, taken alive is um, evidence as well because it shows how they were seated, seated in the car. I was on BET with her and, and somebody said, you know, she's probably going to be upset with you, you know, because the autopsy photo. She was very gracious to me. And Afeni was not about Tupac's death. She was all about his legacy. She was, she, you know, she filed small lawsuits and, and got court orders from people not to sell her son's likeness or sell his music so she could keep, you know, trying to keep it all the same. But she was different. Valetta Wallace, her whole purpose was get whoever killed him. And that, that has been her, her life's pursuit for Biggie. Uh, so it's interesting, two different women, you know, I always say Tupac was his mother's son. She was more introspective, and as was Tupac, and Tupac was so intelligent and such a, 
um, such a poet and, and, and had a way with words. And obviously his mother had to be smart to, to get herself out of a murder charge is pretty incredible. So then in 2018, there's a BET interview with Keefe D where he admits being in the front seat and the shooter's in the back seat and he admits to handing the shooter a gun. Well, to me at that point, your suspects go to two people because there's four people in the car and there's two people in the back seat. So we're down to two. And if you think of the relationship, one being his nephew that was just beaten and kicked, then we're down to one. Exactly. And um, yeah, and the, the other two people who are in the car are dead. One of them was killed the next day in, in a shootout in Compton because of bloods in the Crips, you know, the Bloods went after the Crips in retaliation the next couple of days for, for Tupac's uh, killing. The Bloods did the police work for him, took one of them out, but um, not the police would kill him, but took one out. But yeah, you, you've got two, uh, two suspects in Keefe D. I mean, you not only say it, in, you know, on, on a show, and, but you put it in your own book. And you write it down that you got the gun and handed it to the gunman who happens to be your nephew. And now there's a little bit of, oh, no, it wasn't Orlando who did it. It was, you know, this this guy next to him because Orlando didn't have a good shot. Well, he did. And, and I don't I don't believe that for two seconds. He was bragging about it. Orlando was on the street bragging about it. The Compton PD with their intelligence, they went to went to Vegas and talked to Metro Police and laid it out as Orlando being the killer. No one else. And they had all the names of everybody in the car, including Keefe D that was handed to Metro Police in 1996. You know, justice is sometimes delayed, but yeah, this is this is as good a case as you can get because you've got the the guy who is an ex- well, he's not an accessory to murder because when you provide the weapon that in, in Nevada anyway, that that becomes murder one. So he's toast. And and my understanding is, um, I was on a radio show with with a retired uh, lieutenant who. Um, says he believes that they're going to try to plea, plea him out. So he'll get, uh, instead of life in prison, maybe 25, 30, something like that. They're going to try to plea him out instead of going to trial. Word on the street, don't know if it's true. But you know, when you write a book, a tell-all book, and refer to yourself as the Compton Street legend, you're almost begging for somebody to come after you in one way or another. Oh, absolutely. It's like, come on down. Here I am, you know, wide open. And then, and then what, what's up with moving to Las Vegas? I mean, they probably had him under surveillance the second he moved to Las Vegas. I mean, let's return, not only return to the scene of the crime, mm-hmm. let's move there. I mean, it, it's, it, and I don't know that had Keefe D been in LA still, the Metro Police would have had to work with the LAPD because he was would have been a resident of, of LA still. So I I don't know that 
that Metro Police would have prosecuted it. Being right there in Henderson in the back backyard of Las Vegas, it was a slam dunk. And yeah, you can, you know you you can't uh, you can't keep people from themselves, Cheryl. Amen. Because you know they're taking computers and cell phones and hard drives, tubs of photographs. They've got, of course, his book, and then they've got forty caliber bullets. Are you telling me he kept that kind of item that they're going to be able to connect to that murder? Well, he had a Glock, and it was uh, either a forty or forty-five uh, um, uh, death, uh, bullets, and uh, they did get they did pull a Glock out of the house of Keefe D's when um, they they were uh, back in 97, whatever it was, when they did a raid, a gang raid, and his house was included and came back inconclusive. But as you know, um, inconclusive doesn't mean that that wasn't the bullet. It just means that the bullets that came out of Tupac's body were all mangled and you couldn't match them up. But my understanding is they returned that gun to him because nobody was arrested. And so, it, you know, I don't know if that they, uh, they didn't list a Glock as being part of the evidence, but the fact that he's got that caliber bullets that fit a Glock is hard evidence as well. So he's, um, I, I believe he's toast and he's going to go to prison. Well, your book, The Killing of Tupac Shakur, it doesn't just set the bar. It is the bar. I mean, it is so in-depth and you have everything. You have dates, times, interviews, names, badge numbers, people, photographs, autopsy photographs. I mean, you have it all. And I know that when this broke, you might not have been shocked by the who, um, but you might have been a little shocked that it's finally actually happened. Because you and I have talked about this case for a long time, and why in the world somebody's not in prison when you've got people out there admitting it, you got people filing lawsuits because they know who did it, you've got other people killing other people because they know who did it, I mean, it's just one of those things you're like, how can people have been killed in revenge and you not know when they know? And then mama's filing a lawsuit because she knows it shouldn't have taken his book. That's true. They they knew it all along. And, and there was a lackadaisical attitude, and, and they'll argue with me about it, but I was there. And there's a lack, lackadaisical attitude when the gang, when the, when the head of the investigation, the sergeant comes into his his office that day and turns on his recorder, you know, because we had message recorders back then on our phones. And there were 300 messages, and most of them from reporters from across the world. And he turns off that recorder and doesn't return calls. Is that someone who's looking for, you know, uh, solving it? So America's Most Wanted came to me. And America's Most Wanted came to Las Vegas police. And this may have been in, in 97 or so. And it could have been a year, two, three years after. They went to John Walsh with America's Most Wanted, went to the Metro Police Department to have the sergeant or a detective on the case to go on the show or at least be in the studio after they do their piece and Metro Police Department declined to participate. 
But even the Compton police went to Las Vegas to help. And, you know, Sean Puffy Combs knew that Suge Knight was after him. I mean, that wouldn't have shocked anybody. And then when uh, Sean Puffy Combs had a friend, Jake Rubles, killed in Atlanta, I know the APD was trying to say, hey, can we help connect anything? I mean, this isn't a stretch. Everybody should have been working together. Everybody was kind of saying the exact same thing at the exact same time. And it was just like no action was ever taken. I asked cops a bunch of times, you know what, why aren't they doing it? And there's one thing that you probably know with all your years of working with different police departments and and being a member of a police department. They keep their cases close to their vest. They don't always share. Now, they may share a federal federal case overlaps and they have to, but they're a little selfish sometimes when it comes to sharing, you know, and, and for a good reason, probably. But so everybody was keeping their knowledge of the cases close to the vest and nobody worked together to try to solve it. But but in the Metro Police uh, Department, according to the gang cops out of Compton, who Bobby Ladd was one of them and and uh, Tim was the other who is now gone. And I wish Tim were here for it too. Um, but they were frustrated and called me, what's going on? He said Vegas wasn't interested in any of the intelligence they wanted to give them from the street. And they were right there. They knew exactly what was going on. Had Tupac been killed in a drive-by shooting in Compton, that case would have been solved immediately in L.A. Well, y'all, we're going to have to have Kathy Scott back as we get closer to sentencing or whatever's going to happen in conclusion with this case so we can walk through more of where it started and where we are now. I would be happy to be um, back on and, and as, as things um, solidify in Las Vegas and, and hopefully we'll see some action in L.A. with the Biggie Smalls case. So I, I'd be pleased to, to be on. Thanks so much. Well, Kathy, I can't thank you enough for being here, being with me all these years, working on numerous cases and, you know, giving your time and talent every time. I just appreciate you, and I am so grateful you're in my Zone 7. It's my pleasure. Thanks so much. Well, y'all, I'm going to end Zone 7 the way that I always do with a quote. I miss my son every day a little bit more, but I thank God every day for every second he was here. Afini Shakur. I'm Cheryl McCollum, and this is Zone 7.